Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Mark Polymeropoulos. He retired in June 2019 from the Senior Intelligence Service ranks at the CIA after a 26-year career in operational headquarters and field management assignments covering the Middle East, Europe, Eurasia, and counterterrorism. Mark served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and he is one of the CIA's most decorated field officers. Mark is the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Medal of Merit, and the Intelligence Commendation Medal. He is a respected commentator on foreign policy and intelligence matters, and is the author of Clarity in Crisis. Hey, Mark, this is Jim. Uh, it's great to uh, have you join us today. Phil and I are honored and privileged. Uh, we're also uh, big fans of your new book, Clarity in Crisis. And uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the book uh, and we'll go from there. Sure. Well, you know, I, I retired from, well, first of all, thanks thanks for having me on. It's, it's a great honor to be here. I'm excited to chat today. I'm a little tired from last night. It was the Red Sox-Yankees uh, uh, wild card game, and so uh, so I'm a big Red Sox fan, so I'm pretty happy right now. But um, so so look, so you know, I worked for 26 years um, at the CIA. I retired in July of 2019 at the senior intelligence service level. So I was I was you know I was pretty senior in the organization. I was the equivalent of a you know a four star general. It's it's a strange comparison, but the reason why I, I I talk about that is that you know by the end of my career, um, you know I wasn't running street operations anymore. I wasn't doing the things that I love doing. And I started really thinking about leadership and mentoring. And so what I, you know, I thought when I retire, I'm going to write a book on it. And what was the most interesting part for me was by the end of my career, I became a really good leader. I was certainly wasn't that, you know, when I first had my, my first couple you know, field leadership positions. But, but at the end, I started becoming comfortable in times of crisis, um, you know, in times of ambiguity. I was able to make decisions. You know, I, my happy place was in that time of gray. And I found that really, you know, you know interesting, inspiring, curious. Um, and then I dissected some of the things I did along the way. And so I came up with the principle of clarity and crisis and nine principles that allowed me, you know, in times, in times of ambiguity, a lack of situational awareness to really to be able to lead when others really didn't want to. And, and, and you know, one of the, I, I wrote a book on it. It's, it's a book for everybody. It's not just certainly for my old world of type A, you know, alpha males and females and special operations and intelligence. I mean, I want a librarian to be able to you know, to, to understand this book. And so I've had a lot of, you know, I've a lot of, a lot of fun talking about it. I'm really, really happy about it. Um, and I think it can help people. So, uh, you know, again, thanks for having me on to talk about it today. No, well, thank you, Mark. Um, one of those principles that I'd love to dive into right off the bat, Jim, if it's okay, is 
What does the leadership principle that you share in your book of win an Oscar mean? Sure. So, you know, win an Oscar means you have no time off as a leader. You know, there's no day off. Um, all eyes are upon you all the time. And, and again, everything I talk about, by the way, in the book and these principles is, is, is based on, you know, uh, uh, you know, making mistakes in the past. I mean, my book is not written, you know, it, it's, I, I joke with my Navy SEAL friends that, you know, when they go through BUDS training, they get a book deal, um, uh, and, you know, that's their dive training. But, but in, you know, so I'm not, I'm not really kind of thumping my chest um, and saying charge the hill here. Um, and so, you know, win an Oscar is, is, is based on that concept that all eyes are upon you all the time. Um, but I also, I learned from not doing the right thing sometimes. And, and I, and I tell a story, um, uh, about this when I was in Afghanistan, I was a chief of a CIA paramilitary base in, between 2011 and 2012 in Paktika province. And, and, you know, along the Pakistan, Afghanistan border, we were rocketed every night. It was crazy time, crazy year I spent there. Um, and, and, you know, uh, after one, you know, 36 hour patrol where I went out with, you know, I was the base chief. So I went out with kind of the, you know, the, the paramilitary officers, we came back and I was exhausted. And ordinarily when I go, you know, we go sit around together, go to the mess hall, eat. I was a very engaged leader. You know, I wanted to see how they were doing. I wanted to see how their fat, you know, how everyone's family was, how are they doing in their year long deployment? Um, you know, I, I was very proactive in that, but you know, I was exhausted. Uh, hadn't slept, hadn't eaten. I got a terrible case of bed bugs. I was, I mean, it was, I was miserable. And I went and I sat by myself in the mess hall. And now I am, I am in charge of the toughest human beings on the planet. These were all former special operations personnel who then came and joined the CIA, veterans of everything from Black Hawk down to the, you know, the, the search for Bin Laden and, and Tora Bora, um, you know, former SEALs, former, you know, uh, uh, Army, Army Special Forces. But the whole base fell apart. Everyone sat there and wondered that they thought that I was upset with them. You know, it's Mark mad at us. I mean, my, re my, my initial reaction was terrible to this. You know, I was like, what's wrong with these people? But then I then, you know, I, I basically I went to them and I said, I'm tired. The base nearly fell apart, just kind of kind of emotionally with the toughest people on the planet. And so, you know, I came up with that, that principle of, of win an Oscar because, you know, you, you really all eyes are upon you all the time. And you know, it's, it's a principle where not, you know, you don't have to, you don't, you have to tell the truth. You have to be genuine and authentic. What I should have done is I should have said, Hey, I'll, everyone, I'm tired. I'll, let's get together later. I'm just going to, I need, I need to take a knee and be by myself for a little bit, but I didn't. And it caused really dissension within the base. And I was really surprised. So I loved, I love that, that the principle, just the story too, because, you know, when times are tough in, in times of crisis, again, um, uh, everyone's going to be looking towards you. And so it's really important how you act. You can be authentic. You can say, for example, I'm tired. I'm scared. I'm not sure how it's going to, you know, what's going to happen here, but you know, what you can't do is be absent. And that's what I did. Um, and so I really failed that day. And so that I learned, you know, uh, uh, you know, from that, from that experience. Um, so when later on things happened to me and I tell another story in the book, when I was at the U S uh, U S facility overseas and we were, this facility was attacked by Al Qaeda in this case, as, as we were kind of, uh, uh, you know, breaking, breaking open the weapons um, lock or the safe, as I, everyone was getting in body armor, I was telling people where to go, you know, inside the facility in case the doors were breached. Um, and the Al Qaeda, you know, uh, uh, you know, terrorists, the operatives, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to try to come in and obviously do some harm to us. Um, my blood pressure went from zero to 100. I was terrified. Yet later, when we did the after action report, everyone said, Mark, you looked so calm. And we really and, and they really fed off that. Um, now, I also didn't lie to them. I said, hey, this might not turn out well, you know, and so get your body armor on. I want people coming to, you know, the door in different directions. And so I, I was being authentic, 
but every, well, all eyes were upon me and I gave everyone a sense of calm, but I certainly didn't feel you know, ironically. Um, so again, so it's, it's back to that principle of, you know, and I called it win an Oscar. It's a great catchy phrase, but just remember all eyes are upon you. And I always joke around as a leader, you know, if you want a friend, you know, get a dog, um, you know, you, you, you know, so, so it's, uh, you gotta, you gotta be, um, on stage all the time. Uh, it, it can be tough, but it's really effective. You just understand that principle. No, I love that. Or in the case of someone who's allergic to dogs and cats, like my wife, maybe, maybe <laughs> get a, maybe get a bird. You know, I don't know, a turtle, perhaps something right. not hyperallergenic. But uh, joking aside, Jim, I know that composure is something that Mark's talking about. And that's one of your four C's of mental toughness. Could you riff on that a little bit and then maybe engage Mark a bit further about the the topic of how to how to keep your head when everyone around you, whether it's on the basketball court, um, if you're a swimmer at the swim meet, um, when everyone around you is losing their head? Yeah, it's such an important topic because. Um, as we all know, um, we all look to leaders, whether it's our parents or whether it's coaches or whether it's, you know, in, at, at work, um, to kind of set the tone and, and to give us some, you know, idea that things are going to be okay. And so if the, if our leader is, uh, losing his or her mind, um, you know, it's a pr pretty scary world. Uh, and so I love the idea of, you know, Hey, win an Oscar, and uh, even if you're feeling a little bit, um, you know, uncertain on the inside is still, you know, have that good body language, uh, good facial expressions and, um, you know, and be vulnerable in, in uh, you know, in a way that is helpful, uh, you know, in terms of that self-disclosure, not necessarily wanting help from them. Uh, it's showing them that, hey, we can be vulnerable. I've got your back. We're going to get through this somehow, some way. Right. And, exactly. and you can. Yeah, and you could count on me. Um, but yeah, it's really, I think a lot of leadership is being that kind of eye of the hurricane and uh, and uh, really setting that tone that uh, we're, we're not going to overreact. We're not going to press the panic button, uh, but we're going to we're going to get through this together. Yeah. Jim, what's your joke about um, underreacting and overreacting? Like if you if you were to look back on either a game or in Mark's case, an operation to repel these terrorists or whatever it might be. Um, what's your joke, your dad joke about underreacting versus overreacting? Well, it's, it's such a truism, but, um, you know, I've never had an athlete or, you know, any type of performer, uh, say after a competition or a big event, uh, that they wish they overreacted more, uh, during that event when things weren't going exactly the way they planned and things don't often go the way that we plan. Right. And so, uh, underreacting, you know, could be, you know, using baseball as an example, it could be you get a bad call uh, or you make an error. And, you know, the tendency is to hit the panic button and um, and you, you need to really put that a million miles behind you and move on to the next pitch. And so I think that's a really good lesson for all of us is that in the moment, um, underreact to whatever goes wrong and then stay in the solution. No, well, I that. love that. I, I think of, you know, my, my son plays, you know, plays junior college baseball now. And, and, and so I, you know, I went to a scrimmage, they, you know, they're starting their fall baseball season. So we went to a scrimmage with another junior college team this past weekend in Richmond. And, and I saw him go out as a catcher and I saw him go after the pitcher is struggling. I saw him go after the pitcher after the game. I said, you know, do you say something, you, you know, he's having trouble picking up the signs and the pitcher's getting hit hard. And he says, goes, no, I went out there and I asked him, you know, what he wants to do after the game or, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about which, you know, you know, we're, well, I'll be honest. They were looking at like, you know, girls in the stands, 
I mean, yeah, but so he, and so he's just, you know, it, it, that's the underreacting part of it. Um, it was just to calm the, uh, the pitcher down. It wasn't to kind of berate him for kind of, you know, blowing the game. Um, and I loved that. I was, I was, I laughed afterwards. I said, that's a perfect thing to do. Um, because, you know, everybody out, everyone in the stand thinks they're talking something, you know, serious about, you know, the, you know, the next batter and, and what pitches to call. I said, nope, went out there just told, Hey, what are we doing after the game? Um, and, and of course the pitcher immediately reacts to that and calms down completely. Cause he's, you know, cause he's flustered right there. So uh, I'm with you on that. And, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, a it's, it's just, these are just really good principles that people can use. Absolutely. So obviously baseball there is a consequence if that game is lost particularly if say a scout comes one time to see that picture and the pitcher knows or coach even says by the way there's a scout from you know pick a team here today well (laughs) that could have a layer of pressure but in your example the base is being attacked by al-qaeda and in some cases probably you know other terrorist or separatist organizations the high consequence is you can die and right. all your men and women can die that are in your charge. And then if you survive, maybe you have to be the one to write to the families, tell the, tell the spouses. Um, in that scenario, Mark, if you are not feeling calm, confident, and composed on the outside, if you're terrified, if you don't want your commanding officer, your CEO to have to, to write to your wife and say, or someone knock on the door, and be able to have that hard conversation. How on earth are you able to display calm and composure to the men and women you're trying to lead and get them through that situation? Even though during the, that time, obviously a lot of us, myself included, without the kind of training experience you've had, I, I'm worried that I would fold or be a bad leader. Well, you know, you, you know so, so first of all, my blood, my blood pressure, you know, shot from zero to hundred. I mean, there's grenades being tossed on our roof and there's, you know, I hear a gun battle outside. So you know, this is not just going to have a cup of coffee, you know, so, so you know, I, and, and if you're not scared, actually, there's something wrong with you. So you have this heightened sense of awareness. But I think for me, you know, I go back and, and one of the things that I, I tell the story in the book about this, that, you know, I was the deputy uh, uh, of this facility, the deputy station chief, the chief of station I was with, we had actually been in Iraq together um, under some high pressure situations. So we had something to fall back on. At least I did. He was a former Navy SEAL as well. Um, but and so but I had something to fall back on. And I was like, you know what? okay, this, this kind of sucks, <laughs> you know, there, you know, uh, but I've been in these situations before, you know, and, and, and when I say situations before, it's of that kind of height, heightened sense of getting shot at or being some, in some kind of extreme physical danger where, you know, your, the hair goes up on your, uh, on your arm. You have this kind of really heightened sense of awareness, but, you know, it's okay to be scared too. And you're kind of crazy not to be scared. Um, uh, but what, for me, I think in, in these situations, and then even later on, because I'm talking about, you know, being in the Middle East, being in Iraq, being in Afghanistan, you know, after, after you do this a couple of times, you know, if you've been, you know, uh, uh, you've been around the block, you know, these things, you know, you do get used to this. Um, you don't look for that. Um, but I think experience really does matter in these situations as well, which is also why you see veteran athletes being able to, to um, you know, handle pressure much, much better. Veteran managers, veteran coaches as well, because they've been there before. Um, and so, you know, people at CIA always, you know, we have at CIA, we always had this incredible rush to get promoted. It drove me crazy because the best leaders are the ones who've had so many different experiences overseas, um, you know, with, with, with this, this or that happening, you know, you, you, you know, uh, uh, perhaps physical danger, or you lose an officer or you lose an agent, you know, a spy that we've recruited, uh, extreme counterintelligence threats, extreme, you know, physical threats. And so, Ultimately, when you get to those management positions, if you've had all those experiences, it's really helpful. 
but we have this rush sometimes to promotion where, where people get promoted probably too early. It's to, uh, akin to someone getting maybe called up to the major leagues too early and they're just not ready for that pressure yet. No, for sure. What about the most junior person in that scenario? So you mentioned yourself and, and you're basically your boss, your commander, um, your commanding officer having all these years of experience. What about that 22, 23 year old kid that, okay, they've been through some stuff or maybe they've, you know, been through buds and then come early out of the Navy SEALs or out of another special unit um, as a warfighter, but they're still pretty green. How do you keep that other than just displaying calm yourself? How do you try to impart calm and composure and keep that junior person focused on the need to survive and to protect themselves and their comrades? Well, you know, it's a great question because also, you know, every unit is different. So you have to know your people. Um, and so I, you know, I, so, so in, in that example or in many other examples um, uh, and in, in CIA, we really do, you know, towards the end of my career, I had, I, I ran very large units, but ultimately, or, or, or primarily my career was overseas in the third world where we had small teams. So, you know, each person's experience level, um, you get a sense of, of who they are and how they're going to react to certain situations. And frankly, in times like that, um, you know, I, you, you know, you know, who, who you can really count on, or maybe people who you have to, you know, reassure a little more. Um, but but the, the primary, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think lesson for me on, on situations like that is knowing the individuals who you are leading. Um, you'll have a pretty good idea how they'll react in some situations. Um, and then you kind of can kind of, you know, react accordingly on your own in terms of how much time you have to spend reassuring one person, giving other person, you know, specific duties. Um, for example, when, you know, in, in a terrorist attack like that. Um, and, and so and that was also something I always took a lot of pride in is is really knowing that the, you know, the, the people under my, under my command. I mean, I spent, I was not a absent leader at all. Um, you know, I was very engaged. Uh, uh, CI is a little different. It's not a nine to five job. I and mean, we do so much together. We do so much at night. You know, we, we work, so, you know, sometimes in teams, but a lot of times the teams are, you know, other people are providing support to you for an operation. And so um, just knowing your people is really important. No, I love that. Jim, can you think of an example from either the San Francisco Giants or, Arizona State University or maybe Michigan State where you've been working, you know, with high-end coaches like the likes of uh, Tom Izzo and Nick Saban and many others. Um, a, an example maybe from sports of the, the importance of knowing your people as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we could actually use an example from this recent Ryder Cup. Uh, the U.S. ended mm. up uh, beating the European team, but um, you know, a, a lot of the best Ryder Cup captains uh, know exactly what to do with each player because they get to know them. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, Steve Stricker, who was the Ryder Cup captain this year, you know, he might go up to a guy and say, how are you doing right now? And it might be during a tough match. And the guy might be, hey, you know, I know where I'm at. I know what the situation is and I'm good. And then Steve might say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Whereas another guy, he might have to maybe try to press a different button and, you know, and, and, and say, Hey, you know, if you're angry, stay angry, but, but uh, stay focused uh, for another guy, he might need to calm them down. And I, and I love that we're talking about composure because a lot of this is about uh, about emotional intelligence. And as Mark said, you know, you got to know yourself as a leader, how you react in these situations, but you got to know how your people are going to react. And the only way you're going to know that is to get to know them personally uh, and, and spend time with them. Uh, so, you know, the way I say it in, in a sports context is it's okay to play with emotion. Just don't let the emotion play with you. So you're, in, you're still in control. And that's why I love the title of your book, Clarity in Crisis, Mark, because 
That's what composure provides is the opportunity to maintain that clarity. So you Maybe. can make good decisions. Maybe, Jim, we recently added a fifth C in character, um, particularly in our evaluation of pro, pro uh, athletes for certain teams that should remain nameless so we don't get in trouble. But um, beyond that, you know, major league teams looking at the four Cs plus uh, a fifth C of character. So maybe clarity is almost a sixth C or a, a byproduct of composure then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and even as Mark was talking about, uh, you know, the concept of winning an Oscar, you know, what I was thinking there is, is character as well is if you're not a leader everywhere, you're a leader nowhere. And so you could be, you know, a stand up guy with a lot of integrity at work. But if your people see you out and about uh, doing things that, you know, are a little sketchy, um, then they're not going to uh, necessarily follow what you say when they come to work. And so it's really important, you know, in terms of integrity, character, and and doing what you say and do and saying what you do. Oh, I love that, um, Mark. Going back to we were talking about junior officers and the need to keep them calm and composed. Much as you know, in the leader's mind, we heard from from a wildland firefighter chief about um, bringing these twenty-year-olds up a ridge where waves were cresting, like the kind of waves um, our, our soon-to-be guest Laird Hamilton surfs in Hawaii. But these waves are made of fire, and the need to get that ridge line, do what they need to do to dig that, uh, to contain the fire and stay there instead of running. And if they run downhill, obviously fire travels downhill. So it's going to catch them, probably overrun them. And so really to override all their natural instincts. But um, in terms of junior leaders, one of the things I loved in your book was your commitment to pour into them so that they in turn could then pour into other people. So kind of that mentor slash mentee relationship, which we hear a lot in business. You know, we hear about um, Greg Popovich's coaching tree or Bill Belichick's coaching tree in sports. But can you talk to me a little bit of, about the importance to you personally of planting that acorn of mentoring someone that then eventually turns into a kind of coaching tree, both in in the organization of the CIA and in, in the lives of your people? Absolutely. And, and, and so, you know, one of the principles in the book is I, I call it be a people developer. And again, it all has to do with, so it's something I believe in, but again, keep in mind that this has to do with leading teams in times of crisis. Yes. If you've developed all your people, you'll have that faith in them. But, but just going back to the kind of the pure concept of mentorship, you know, by the end of my career, when I was overseeing clandestine operations over Europe and Eurasia, I had thousands of people working for me. I didn't like the job anymore. Um, you know, I was certainly not on the street running, running, you know, uh, uh, espionage operations. It was a lot of, you know, resources and budgets and, 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 you know, White House meetings and, um, and not, not, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for senior CIO officers, you know, to go, you know, at the end of their career to kind of have that longing for the past. But I found something that was really fulfilling. And that was, that was something that I'd done my whole career, but I could still do even the senior officer. And that's mentorship. That is, that is developing um, uh, because, because it's something that I enjoyed so much because ultimately, you know, I, I love, I love telling the story. I, you know, I can go downstairs in my basement. I got a lot of fancy hardware, you know, and, and, you know, but, you know, you know, God bless Harper Collins, the publisher and, and everything. Cause they, you know, everyone has talked about, you know, all these, all these, you know, the, the, uh, intelligence medals that I was fortunate, um, or perhaps lucky, um, to, to have been, uh, you know, to, to have received that, to have received over the years. And it's, you know, it's, and so, I was a highly decorated officer, but all those medals are sitting down in my basement collecting dust. And I go down there with the scotch and I smile and, and guess what? Nobody cares and nobody remembers. 
So what do people remember about Mark Palomaropoulos? So at, at the first book event I did in my hometown in Vienna, Virginia, which is great because it's packed with, with you know, friends and family and, co- and you know, workers from my past, an officer of mine came to me, who had worked for me, um, came and he took my son aside and he said, Mark was the best leader that, that I ever had. He taught me so much. And of course, I didn't even hear it at the time. But later on, after when my son recounted this to me, I was, I was blown away. And that meant more to me than anything else. And this is the same individual I talk about in the book. Um, when, I was a, when I was a base chief in Afghanistan, I used to have to leave every once in a while. So I'm, you, know, the, you have the capital in Kabul. I'm in eastern Afghanistan. So let's say I have to go visit the U.S. Embassy. I, you know, I don't relinquish command of the base formally. But what I did for each one of my operations officers um, uh, it was I would allow them for 24 or 48 hours to lead the base and, and, and they would do everything. And I remember I was, and I tell the story in the book, I'm jumping on a helicopter to fly off. And, and one of the officers comes to me and says, Hey boss, I'll hold down the fort. I did not react well. So perhaps this is not a model reaction. I grabbed him by his kind of shirt, you know, by his shirt. And I looked him straight in the face. I said, with some more expletives, I said, no, you're running the base right now. I'm coming back in two days. You better make every decision. We're going to take fire tomorrow morning, like we always do from, from, you know, from Pakistan. We're going to return fire. You're going to do all the things we do all the time, but this base is yours. And his eyes were bugged out. <laughs> so I jumped on the helicopter, took off. The reason why, it's, so I did that for each one of my officers. So this individual who came to the book signing is the same officer who, you know, who right now he's been a chief of station multiple times. You know, th- this, is, this is 10 years since, since that event in Afghanistan. He's become a tremendous leader and a great success in the organization. But he actually, and he, that's what he told my son, is he remembered that, um, uh, uh, you know, just that leadership principle of giving him those kind of informal opportunities to lead. Um, now, of course, he also, you know, when I, and I called him after this. I said, that was really nice what you, what you said to my son. He's like, well, I didn't tell him that there's a lot of things that you did that I didn't like. <laughs> so I learned from that, too. Um, but look, at the end of the day, we got to pass the torch. I mean, that's it. That's the only thing. I'm going to be remembered as a successful leader in CIA if I groom the next generation, not from the fancy operations that I ran, that I ran that will, you know, that, that no one really will, well, maybe some people remember. Some of them were really good, but, but you, you, you get the point is that, is that developing, uh, you know, the next generation is really going to be your greatest legacy. And it's something that meant so much to me, um, you know, uh, uh, during my career. And, and that's why I love this principle. Um, and, and, and here's the thing at the end of the day, you, you, I mean, you have to, you know, you're, when you, when you get to positions of leadership and once you understand this principle of developing others, you know, your ego goes away. This is not, a, you know, so, so this is not Mark running a great CIA station or base and being heroic and, and running all these successful operations. It's Mark teaching the next generation. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's actually kind of taking your ego and putting it at, 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 at a side as well. Um, uh, but ultimately that's how you're going to be remembered. And, uh, and I think that, you know, not everyone in the CIA is going to love Mark Palomaropoulos, but if you ask, you know, uh, if you go in there right now and ask about me as a leader, I think they would, they would be extremely positive because this is what I really preached was, uh, was, uh, was passing the torch to the next generation. I love yeah. that. Um, if a young leader is listening to you, so I'm talking everything from, I have a, you know, a 15 year old, um, Johnny, um, now high school, I have him help us. Um, and Harry is 12. So uh, our filmmaker and our Lego master builder, respectively. But if they were put in a leadership position, say at youth group at church, and they, they're going to say, well, dad, I don't know what the heck, I'm not a leader, I don't know what to do. Or anyone lead, reading our book, Jim, the leader's mind. And they think, well, this is, I'm not sure about if I should even be reading this or 
pick this up because I'm not a leader. Well, you are in some ways. So if a leader, whether you know they're 12, they're 15, they're 55, they're 85, says, I don't know where to start with mentoring someone, Mark. Where, where could I even start with that? What would you say to that person? I mean, well, well, first of all, you know, I, I think that that's that's a false premise because, you know, mentoring is a lot about passing on experiences. Um, it's just about talking. It's about teaching, you know, principles that I really uh, or, or characteristics that I thought made great intelligence officers, things like humility. Um, you know, everyone is, you know, young, young officers, young leaders are striving so hard to be the best. And that's great. That's fine. Um, but it's also about learning how to deal with, with failing. Um, and, and adversity. I mean, if, if there's one kind of concept in my book that, that is kind of the theme throughout the whole book is how, how, how individuals and teams deal with, you know, uh, overcoming adverse situations. Um, everybody is going to fail. It's how you react to that. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that uh, uh, you know, uh, young officers, um, you know, uh, have that great sense of commitment and passion. I'm talking about for the CIA, but in a lot of professions, there, there's certainly... Um, you know, uh, still idealistic, and that's wonderful. Um, uh, and so, you know, one of the things I would, I would, you know, I would try to pass on is is just that idea of being humble. Um, in the intelligence business, just like in sport, you know, you have you can have tremendous failure, and then there's you know uh, uh, there's there's a lot of adversity. That, I'm sorry, the tremendous success, but there's a lot of failure and adversity that's always around the corner. You know, I always I would tell people all the time, don't believe your own hype. Um, you might think you're the baddest, you know, dude or gal of all time. Um, but just kind of, you know, kind of reset a little bit um, and understand that there's, you know, we're in, this is a really high stakes, you know, game that we're in. It's not a game, a profession that we're in. And so um, just be humble. Uh, and I think those are the things that I, I, I tried to pass on to, to kind of younger leaders, especially, um, you know, when, when you don't want to, you know, you don't want to uh, 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 kind of dampen their enthusiasm. Um, but but uh, you also don't want to make mistakes. Um, and so, again, that principle of humility is something I love. I love that. Jim, what's a great example from sports of humility um, of a, an individual, a coach or a team that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I've had so many athletes that uh, uh, that I've seen uh, achieve their dream goals. And, and a lot of them have what Mark was talking about. They have this uh, confidence when they perform, but they have this humility when they learn. And, you know, I like to say that uh, uh, if you think you're uh, perfect, uh, you never will be. And so, um, you know, or you think that you've arrived, then then you never will get there. You know, it's it's always going to be a journey uh, at, about self growth and about learning what you do and how to do it better. And so, I love what Mark's saying in terms of just have, uh, maintaining a growth mindset. Um, and so, you could be really good at what you do and know that, uh, but there's probably some things you don't know. And uh, so, keep your ears and eyes open. Um, and then, I love what you said about just giving back and. And, and passing the torch. And, uh, you know, we only get to uh, borrow what we do, uh, whatever role we're in, we, we don't get to own it forever. That's and right. yeah. um, so kind of what you're also talking there is, you know, kind of that sports uh, analogy of leave what you found better than when you found it. So leave the program better than when you came to the program. And a leader uh, mentoring others is, is maybe the best way to do that. Oh, I love that. Um, speaking of adversity and learning from failure, um, there's an, a, an individual in the book. I'm not sure if you ever mentioned his last name or if you can for security reasons, but his yeah. name is Charlie. Oh, yeah. And people, if you haven't read this book, um, 
just read the bits about Charlie, and this is worth a thousand times more than the sticker price. Seriously. Um, what did Charlie have to teach you about failure and bouncing back from that? Oh, wow. So, so you know, I, when I, I wrote the book, I didn't include his last name. But later on, I, I received permission from his family to, to be able to talk about it. So his name was Charlie Seidel. He was um, and, I, and I actually wrote a piece in, 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 the, in the media about him um, uh, in the last couple of months because I called him the last great American Arabist. So he was an expert on the Arab world. He was my mentor. Um, he was someone whose dad was a former, you know, was an agency officer. He grew up in Iran, um, went to high school in Beirut, um, spoke beautiful Arabic, and he was beloved in the Middle East. Um, because he had a lot of these characteristics we're talking about, just kind, compassionate, humble, fearless. Um, and, and I worked for him in multiple places uh, all over the world, including in Iraq. Uh, he, was, uh, he was one of our, he was, uh, uh, one of our, he was actually our first uh, uh, chief of station in Baghdad when, when after, after uh, uh, the U.S. invasion in, in 2003. Um, he did so much for me in so many different uh, 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 ways. And, and the book, you know, Charlie is interspersed throughout the book, but the stories of Charlie are really important. Um, you know, one of, one of the principles I talked about was, was family, I call it family values. And that's the idea. If you want, you know, men and women to follow you into battle, you know, they got to believe in each other and you have to build this really close knit team. And, and I'll tell you, so, you know, we were in Iraq. Um, I, I, you know, we, I, I had been there for about five, six months. Um, I mean, it was, you know, really terrible conditions, dangerous conditions. I was assigned to Naval Special Warfare to the SEALs. We were kind of wrapping up high value targets. I hadn't showered for six weeks. I saw a lot of bad things and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, in terms, in, 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 ter in terms of, you know, the horrors of war. And when I came back, we came back, I was not in great shape. I had, I definitely had PTSD. I was having terrible nightmares. And, and ultimately my wife contacted Charlie, who was, he was back as well, because after about half a year, they all they brought us all home. And so what he did, because he knew I was having a tough time. Uh, my wife was really worried about me. Um, like many other folks who have gone through this stuff, I was kind of refusing to accept this and get, and get the care I needed. But Charlie organized at his, at his uh, cottage in Cape Cod a reunion of the, of the first Baghdad team of about you know, 10 different officers and their families for two weeks. We rented houses everywhere because he knew that's what I, he literally did this just for me. He knew that's what I needed. And later on, of course, and I, and I, I healed, I got better, but I was blown away by that compassion. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I mean, I tell this story over and over again, because that's the kind of leader you want to be. Um, I also tell great stories about Charlie and how, you know, I, how I dealt with how he dealt with me failing. Um, you know, we ran, a, I, I botched an operation, you know, terribly one time. Um, uh, and, and the story's in the book, but ultimately I remember coming back to the station and he said, how'd it go? And I said, yeah, not so good. And I explained what happened. And he asked me three questions. He said, you know, did you embarrass the United States government? I said, no. He said, did any, you know, did you lose any money? Nobody wants to lose money. I said, we didn't lose any money. He said, is anyone dead? I said, no one's dead. He's like, all right. You know, and, and, and then he made fun of me for kind of some of the mistakes I made kind of just you know, in, in, in a joking manner. But, you know, uh, you know, he made me kind of, uh, uh, you know, understand that it was okay to fail as long as I learned from it. So then the next part of the whole story is, you know, you know, what did you learn from this? And so, so I always talk about this, that, you know, that failing is part of the whole process of growth. And again, it's a process of what I talk about in terms of, uh, you know, adversity um, is so critical to your success, but then um, ultimately you got to learn from it and, uh, uh, and, and move forward. Now, I, I also say failure just to me with my crazy type A personality, failure to me was not, it was not acceptable, but failing is, and there's a, there's a difference between the two, but Charlie was someone who was actually integral to, to, you know, my growth as an officer 
Um, it, it was integral to my feelings towards the, the CIA. I mean, the book is also almost, a, you know, it's almost a love letter to the organization, um, you know, uh, uh, because I really feel it's an indispensable institution for the United States. One of the reasons I wanted to write the book, too, was to tell that, to, you know, tell that story to the world. Um, but Charlie was just such a beloved figure. Literally today, our, our deputy director of operations, the number, the, the, the chief spy, you know, not the CIA director, the chief spy there was mentored by Charlie. Everybody in the positions in the Near East Division now, um, all mentored by Charlie. He had just an incredible impact on our organization. He, he's passed away, unfortunately, um, just of natural causes. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, if you just say that name, Charlie, at CIA, everyone's going to know who you're talking about. That's the, that's the kind of person he was. Yeah. That, um, those questions you asked, is that the concept of the three questions? Is that what you call it in the book? Uh, no, I mean, it was just, you know, these were just, it, it was, it was kind of just the, the, the three things that would cause, you know, a little bit more of eyebrows being raised, you know, okay. is anyone dead to lose money to embarrass the US government? The answer yeah. is no to all three of those. So okay. he's like, all right, come on. Uh, yeah. we're okay so, now. <laughs> so maybe a coach or a leader in another sphere could come up with their own three questions yeah. and ask their assistant coaches. Well, you know, did someone get injured, you know? Critically, to, how bad you know, really is this? I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah. You know, really, that yeah. you're feeling terrible. You feel like you let down the entire planet. No, take a step back, and that was really important for me. And you know, you employ that later on as as a leader as well. When especially when young officers come and that you know something's gone wrong, intelligence operations fail constantly, just like an, you know athletes fail as well. I mean, you, there's you know there's so many parallels. That's why you know half the book is about baseball. Um, uh, 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 but but ultimately. You know, it's just having, um, uh, you know, that sense of calm that he had. And he had a, a wonderful kind of infectious smile. Now, if he's pissed at you, he would let you know as well. Um, but but he really kind of, he, he taught me so much and, and uh, uh, you know, what an impact he's had on just, you know, generations of agency officers. For sure. Jim, I know we joked around about the baseball examples. And I said, man, if we get on the baseball, Jim, let's steer him back because it's the wrong shaped ball for me, mate, because it's not a rugby <laughs> ball or a basketball. Um, so joking aside, though, Jim, I know we had talked about the example of David Ross as a glue guy that that Mark um, had mentioned. Any thoughts there around um, David's example and maybe a question for Mark to expand on that a little bit about the importance of glue guys or something along those lines? Uh, I love the concept of glue guys that, you know, kind of keep everyone together and and look for different ways to be helpful, uh, small or big. Um, and uh, I like to call them Elmer's after Elmer, Elmer's glue, you know, like, and I think that every company, every group, uh, every team should uh, uh, give an award, uh, a bottle of Elmer's glue to, to, you know, whoever that week was the glue guy uh, and made a difference in that way. Um, a lot of times the glue guy is, ta is uh, taken for granted, but um, they play such an important role. Um, Tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, how you how you've seen leadership change over the course of your career. Because I'm sure when you started, uh, maybe it was more of the, you know, the idea of a leader was the guy that would, uh, you know, bang his fist on the on the desk, and you know, and then you know, and then people skills became more important over time. Oh, there's there's no doubt. So, and, and there's no doubt about that. And and look, the CIA was is very heavily influenced by the United States military, so. You know, when I joined in 1993, you know, I remember, I remember the first boss I had an overseas station. He said, I have an open door policy. I said, OK, great. He was a former Marine. I walked right in there one day and I thought he was going to you know, lock my head off. And people, you know, in the, in the back of the station are like, you did what? I was like, I thought he had an open door policy. No. 
And, and so, so, and, but, but the CIA has changed. It's not kind of that rigid kind of military hierarchy and it changed for the better. And it, and it had to change because guess what? The officers who are now coming in will not tolerate that. So, so while, while leaders change, and of course they, you know, they get older and they retire. Um, and as we all kind of grew up as leaders in the organization, you also realize the most important, you know, uh, you know, you know, commodity we have is our, our people. Um, but the younger generation are a lot different. They, they will not tolerate getting told what to do. Um, you know, and it's, it's also not smart. And it's not smart because in the intelligence business, so much is, is based on, on, you know, it's, it, it's, it's got to be based on creativity. It's got to be based on kind of this free flowing thinking and ideas. And so uh, the, the, I love the question, Jim, you asked, because when you start off as a leader, you think that you have to have all the answers. You know, you have to dictate to everybody. You have to be perfect on everything. As you get older, and especially as I got, you know, uh, you know, more senior in the ranks, you know, there are a couple things that I realized. First of all, it's not about not about me anymore. I'm going to succeed based on the people I have. And by the way, my bosses know that, too. So it's not about me. Uh, uh, so you have to, get, again, got to put your ego aside. Um, one of the amazing things that I realized, and I, I had this kind of you know, moment of epiphany at one of my one of my postings, I was like, everybody here is smarter than me. And instead of instead of feeling bad about that, I was like, boy, I'm lucky. You know, this is amazing. Um, and I and so you even adjust your leadership style to, and this has to do with planning. You know, so what do we do? You know, just and everybody does planning. Coaches do, sales executives do. You know, in the CIA, we plan operations. So instead of sitting down and me telling them what to do, I would say, what do you all think? You are, you have this much more you know kind of dynamic give and take with your employees, uh, and I think that's really healthy. Now, ultimately, I'm going to be the one you know decides, and I would even lay out the rules, say. Hey, we're going to have a brainstorming session. I know we're going to run this operation. I want everybody's idea. Then I'm going to make the decision. But your input is critical. So why does that matter? Well, ultimately, they have a, they, you know they're buying into this, um, and, and that's and that's really important. Even when if I decide to go to a direction that they didn't agree with, they felt they had buy-in. I mean, it's really basic, simple stuff. But a lot of junior leaders didn't don't do that because they think that shows some kind of weakness that you're asking questions and taking input. And, and of course, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the CIA of the old, you know, wouldn't tolerate that either. You basically were told what to do. So, but, you know, again, it's all about, you know, demographics, new, the new people coming in, because ultimately while CIA for me and many others was a, was a career choice. I mean, you join the CIA, you don't leave. It's like the Roach Motel, you know, um, but, <laughs> or, the, but or the Bates Motel. In a the Bates Motel right? Yeah. Um, but ultimately here, you know, in, in 2021, you know, people, you know, young officers will leave. And if you, and and every single survey that the CIA does, when they ask people why they're separating, it's they talk about because it's because of poor leadership, and and to me that is all you know that has to be said, um, and that you know you know what a what a you know so we, it's it's a it's a huge responsibility for the leaders. It's a blessing too because you have some control, um, uh, but but times certainly have changed. So uh, uh, it, you know it's better off if we get input from folks. Um, it's also going to help for kind of retention, you know, you know for the future. Yeah, Jim, um, even with the Giants, so you were pre-TikTok, you were pre-Snapchat as, as peak performance coordinator, but you were there for three years. How did you start to see the dynamics change in the clubhouse with younger guys maybe coming in and spending four or five hours a day on Instagram sometimes if they could get away with it or Facebook or MySpace or whatever? <laughs> I'm kidding. You're not that much older than me at all. But uh, yeah, just with social media and communication styles and and maybe how, you know, maybe an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid coming out of the farm system or the minor leagues needs to be handled differently by managers and assistant coaches versus, say, a 38-year-old veteran who's uh, 
who's been around the block and like us still had to handwrite all of his or her papers in college. Yeah, well, a lot of the young pro athletes that I work with, uh, they really want uh, you to get to know them as a person. And, and, you know, no one wants to feel like a productivity machine. And, um, and you know, so getting to know your people, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, uh, is such a key point. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, the younger generation, um, we would go out to dinner and they would all be on their phone and they weren't even talking with each other. So getting conversation started, showing some curiosity, asking questions about family, um, really helped to open them up and serve as a good model for them to do that with each other. Um, you know, and it's even going back to what, what uh, we were talking about with Charlie, uh, I just love that, you know, he was able to keep things in perspective with those three questions. Um, and he didn't use that as an opportunity to shame or embarrass or, or scare you into never making a mistake again. So you played too safe. Um, you know, he let you know that, Hey, this is serious, you know, this is important, but, um, but, you know, we're going to make mistakes. And, and like you said, let's learn from them and move on. But I think that if you could really, uh, you know, it's about winning uh, hearts and minds. And so if you could win the hearts and minds of the people that work for you or work with you. Uh, they'll go through a brick wall for you. They'll, they'll do the extra. And, you know, I heard a, a coach one time say, you know, if, uh, if your athletes, and so this applies to leadership in every situation, if your athletes realize that, you know, the leader, the coach is more concerned about you and your growth than, you know, their ego and what they're getting out of it, um, you'll always be, you'll always have a good team. And so, uh, it sounds like Charlie, you know, his heart was in the right place. And and what a great role model for all of us. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, Mark, so something we kind of glossed over there. Um, obviously, Jim knows the story being a baseball aficionado and loving the game from a young child and yourself, too. But if someone's like me, like a dirty Brit or a Kiwi or an Aussie listening, they're like, well, I, you know, I heard about this baseball thing, never played it, never seen a, never seen a live game, never certainly never seen a major league game outside of the stinky Kansas City Royals before they were not stinky. Um, you know, back in the early 2000s, I saw a game and the stadium was half empty and it probably wasn't anything near like their uh, their run to the, the, the championship. So um, David Ross, I've heard the name. I've seen an interview or two in, in Sports Illustrated, which I still subscribe to to this day. It's still brilliant journalism. But um, aside from my magazine subscription preferences, tell us a little bit more about the example of David Ross as a glue guy, and then maybe an example of a glue guy or girl um, that you had the pleasure of leading. Well, I mean, you know, so so uh, David Ross, you know, was a you know played for the Chicago Cubs. He was a, you know was a catcher, um, but you know, and he wrote it. He wrote an autobiography, which uh, uh, I can't remember the title, the name of it, but it. But again, in, in my journey, I'm kind of, you know, thinking about the, the glue guy and the glue gal. Um, it really had a profound effect on me because, again, it's just the idea of a selfless player. I mean, simple as that, uh, that, you know, and that's the that, that's the, the indispensable person or, or you know, or it, it could be a leader even, you know, behind the scenes. So so it's not going to be the superstar. He or she is not going to hit, you know, the game winning home run. Um, uh, but they're absolutely indispensable. And everybody or a lot of people on, on the team knows that. Um, and so, and, and then the reason why I think it's really important is because, you know, so the manager, uh, of the, you know, uh, knows this as well. So, so why is the glue guy really, you know, important? So number one, you have to celebrate, as Jim said, you have to celebrate their successes. And of course, David Ross was really celebrated. He was a beloved figure there. Um, uh, 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 but, but number two, you also have to involve them in the planning. 
Um, and so that's really important too. And so, you know, if for me as a CIA officer, and I'm diverging a little bit from your question, but it's, but it's important mm -hmm. because, you know, uh, uh, as you, as I got to be a more, you know, seasoned leader, particularly at the end of my career, you know, I would have my case officers. These are the fighter pilots. These are the Navy SEALs. They're the ones who are handling our agents. So we plan an operation. Well, when I, early in my career, that's all I had talked to at the, at the, at the latter stages of my career, who I would, who would I have in that meeting? I would have our support personnel. I would have our finance people. You can't run operations. You can't do anything about money. We have, I'd have our logistics people. So you're taking all the elements that make up uh, a great team and you're doing, and you're, you're, you're running planning sessions with them as well. It would be the same thing in, in a, you know, in a major league clubhouse, um, you know, it, where, where you really, you know, you're, you're putting together, um, uh, uh, you know, both, uh, you know, the bench players, all the superstars together um, in kind of, you know, you know, in, in a, in a pregame meeting. And so, you know, ultimately it's, it's, it's not particularly hard um, to understand this concept of the glue guy, but young leaders don't do this very well. They don't celebrate those, those indispensable people, you know, behind the scenes. And so that's really why, you know, I, 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 I talk about it and, you know, the, the, I give examples in the book and, and some of my favorite examples are even, you know, people are surprised about, you know, in Afghanistan, um, you know, you know, so we were there for a year. We had we had our, our cooks, literally the cook. Um, it wasn't even an American. It was from another country. And so, you know, what would the cook do? Well, the cook would, would, would feed us, would allow us to go out on those 36 hour patrols. Um, none, none of our successes in Afghanistan um, happen if we don't have kind of good wellness. Um, you know, so, you know, people exercise, you know, regularly, we had a great gym, but also we had great food. So I remember, at, you know, we, we ran a very successful operation where we, where we took uh, a high value target off the battlefield and we we're in a secure facility. And I said, and we're having, you know, every, yeah, I'm talking about it. And I said, go get the cooks. And everyone's like, well, they can't come in here. They're not clear. I said, doesn't matter. We brought the cooks in who were kind of dumbfounded. They were being um, included in this. And I said, Hey, just everyone here, like we have this incredible success. This is going to be on the page you know, uh, of, of every paper in the Western world. Um, but let's make sure, I, you know, using the cook's names, that we celebrate that, that they are just as much a part of this as everyone else. It's so easy to do that. So David Ross saying, going back to that, you know, it, it, he's not, he, you know, he's not going to win the MVP, um, uh, 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 you know, for, for the Cubs. He's not, he's certainly not going to, uh, you know, get, you know, uh, necessarily, you know, um, uh, you know, not getting the game winning RBIs. Um, but he is indispensable to that team. Everybody knew it, um, and he was kind of the quintessential glue guy. Yeah, I, I, I would. Yeah, I would add to that that uh, you know just some uh, more specific examples of of him. Uh, you know, just saying hi to everyone when he would walk into the clubhouse, and you know, it could be. Uh, could be the, uh, you know, like you said, it could be someone in the uh, kitchen or it could be, right. uh, you know, it could be someone that's, uh, you know, just kind of on the periphery, but everyone counts, everyone matters and everyone's important. And um, that really does make a huge difference. And, you know, and, and so to get everyone pulling in the same direction uh, is important. And uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great role model and, and, uh, and, you know, I think that it wasn't a surprise that he was a catcher because catchers sometimes like to take care of everyone right. else. But yeah, um, yeah it, and, and it's a good I like what you said that, you know, he's not going to necessarily win an MVP, but he's a guy that would want to win an MVP in whatever role he had. And so right. we can't all be the superstar or at least at one time, but we can all be superstars in whatever role we do have. And so sometimes we need to be a leader and sometimes we need to be a follower. Uh, yeah, I love, yeah, I love go ahead. it. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say a great example. And last Chicago Bulls story I'll share, at least for this podcast, Jim, you know, they're going to keep coming. So, you know, I love them. I yeah. love them. 
Mark, I don't know if you saw the the uh, the excellent um, documentary that Jason here and, and team did, the Last Dance on, on Jordan and the Bulls. Unbelievable! I I I watched it twice. Yeah. Mesmerized by it. Absolutely. So Steve Kerr talks about he did not study Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, or even at that time Phil Jackson. Although I'm sure the tutelage of Phil and um, of Coach Popovich in San Antonio certainly didn't hurt, right? But he actually studied being brilliant in his role. Um, he said, I want to be the next John Paxson. He knew John was the last couple of years. He was like, man, I wish I could learn more from that guy. And when he got there, John took him under his wing and taught him how to be John Paxson 2.0. And then I love how Steve Nash essentially did the same with Steph Curry. Like everyone said, oh, Steve Nash, you know, is a terrible hire. He has no coaching experience. They said the the same about Steve Kerr. So let's assume that Kyrie, KD, um, and the Beard are, are healthy for the Nets. Will buckle up. Even the Lakers buckle up. But I love that there are all these parallels between generations and and both the Steve Kerr um, working with, uh, as I say, or, or under the tutelage of John Paxson, and for years before that reviewing film how could i be that john paxson role because he was the greatest in that role possibly of all time um or even rob big shot ori right same thing and then how steve nash you know at mvp level managed to teach steph curry over a couple of years so anyone that says that um you know steve Kerr didn't have any coaching experience wrong and also experience of being a great mentee and also Steve Nash does have head coaching experience with possibly the greatest shooter of all time in Steph Curry. Yeah. So were there any lessons um, from the last dance that stood out in terms of leadership or mindset for you? Oh, wow. Um, you know, so one of the things that I found fascinating was how demanding, um, you know, Michael Jordan was of his teammates. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and so and, and it, it, at some point it, be, it became uncomfortable to watch. I mean, remember that. Um, he was tough on them. And so, and, and, and it succeeded. Um, but he also, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't apologize for any of that. Um, I, I, I found that fascinating. I mean, one of the things that, that, that I liked about that was the, that idea of, of kind of maybe, maybe you call it peer pressure, having, having, you know, having that pressure to perform, um, uh, uh, and then everyone rises. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think about, you know, there's one of the parallels to the book. I, you know, I talk about this, this, this concept of a, of a, a stand-up morning meeting. Um, and the stand-up morning meeting in, in my world was everybody around the table would tell me what they did last night. Now at CIA, we work at night. Um, but the one or two players, sorry, one or two players, you know, so someone was out, had an agent meeting. Someone was providing counter surveillance. Someone had to go to a reception somewhere. And if someone says, well, I took the night off. Now that's okay. If they if they work the last six nights, but if it's a repeated, you know, repeated offense, everybody is looking at that individual saying you're not pulling your weight. It was it was similar to Michael Jordan. I mean, you know, with his work ethic, um, and, you know, I mean, you know, I don't think he ever was outworked at any time. And so just just, you know, having that um, uh, as, uh, uh, you know, uh, as you know, I think there there certainly was a lot of peer pressure. There's a lot of pressure on those around him um, to always perform, always to get better. Um, but 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 honestly, there was I, I think my my takeaway from that documentary, there was some um, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't entirely flattering on Michael Jordan, frankly, um, you know, a lot of moments there. Um, but it sure was fascinating, you know, seeing someone who had this just incredible, intense you know, desire and will to win. No, I love that, Jim. Um, when your best player 
possibly the best player ever. I'm still going to say it. Okay, we could put LeBron. We could say, well, Wilt was the best natural athlete. You know, um, Bill Russell was the best leader or winner um, and the winningest player plus coach in history, unless Steve Kerr wins a few more, hopefully with the Warriors. That's our guy. But um, Jim, when you're, what well, in your experience in sport, what happens when the most talented and physically gifted person like a Michael Jordan is also your hardest worker and is, as he said, I will never ask them to do something that I'm not going to do okay. harder and faster. I, he wanted to win every sprint, even as a 38-year-old with the Wizards. What impact does that have on both the coaching staff and, and the the, the uh, rest of the team, particularly junior players or players that are new to that organization? Well, uh, great question. Just like Mark said, it it can be hard <laughs> to watch and, and, and hard to live at times. But um, to me, that would be a coach's dream is to have your best player, your, your hardest worker. Uh, that's the best way to get in, uh, you know, to get everyone uh, on the same page, you know, with, you know, with Jordan, it was best is the standard. Uh, we're not going to look for shortcuts. We're not going to, you know, good isn't good enough today at practice. And if we really want to see how good we can be, you know, we got to prove it every day. And so I, I get a kick out of that. And I think that, you know, at some level, he's also challenging his players is if you could handle me, we could, you could handle anything. And so, um, you know, you're get used to handling me and the Knicks and, you know, and the Pistons and some of these other teams uh, won't seem so scary. And so, um, you know, I really like that he uh, was on a, unapologetic, apologetic about it. Um, uh, you know, it, this isn't, this wasn't for funsies. This wasn't a club sport. This is the NBA. And it's hard. And back then, you remember how, how, how physical the game was. And so uh, I think he was, in his own way, he was getting everyone battle ready. No, I love that. Um, Mark, what's an example of um, where Jordan said, like, I'll never ask them to do any. I am hard on him, particularly poor Scotty Burrell, right? I'm sure he's still in count. Where he was like, man, Scotty Burrell, I see you again. I'm going to whip your ass. Right? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> poor old Scotty Burrell. I kind of want to give him a hug, you know, and maybe send him a, a bottle of wine to cheer him up or something. But uh, that aside, what, what's an example of, from your own leadership or maybe Charlie's leadership uh, of what Jordan said of, I'll never ask them to do something that I'm not willing to do? Oh, sure. Um, and, and first of all, I, I love that leadership principle. And if, if you don't embrace that, you know, right off the bat, you're, you're not going to succeed. I mean, you just have to, because that, that just makes you, you, you have to be authentic. And so for me, that was easy. You know, in, in Afghanistan, we had, you know, uh, support flights coming in, either airdrops where a C-17 would drop, you know, uh, you know, it would be everything from bladders of fuel to, to you know, supplies to, to helicopter resupply fights, flights. But guess what? Guess when they 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 occur, especially the, the helicopter flights, when it's dark out in the middle of the night. The last thing I want to do is wake up at one o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, disrupt the entire kind of sleep rhythm and pattern of the next you know next day or so, um, and be un, you know and unlo be unloading you know crates out of a helicopter um, you know in a, in a cold you know helicopter landing zone. Yet I did it every time um, because I, I was asking my all, all you know all my guys and gals to do the same thing. So. Helicopters coming in at 1 a.m. Guess who's got to be out there? It's got to be me. Um, uh, you know, so just just 100%. Same thing at a mess hall. You know, you know what's the, the old adage? I mean, you know, I, I was not in the military, but you know, I certainly worked with a lot of former, uh, 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 you know, uh, members who served. But my friends in the Marine Corps kind of taught me. Who were Marines taught me this 100%. Never eat in front of your 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 people. Um, you know, so I I wait until everyone else. I would be the last one to eat every time. Just little things like that. 
Is that where Simon Sinek got that concept of leaders eat last? Yeah, hundred percent. That's that's a that's a Marine Corps value that that hundred that that that's been kind of ingrained um, in them. But just little things like that, and so you know, um, you just have you got to be selfless. Uh, you know, that's that's that is that is a, a you know kind of a huge uh, I think you know foundational leadership principle. But um, you know, just don't ask others uh, to do what you you know uh, or you know what, what what you would not. And so so ultimately, and Michael Jordan's hundred percent right. Um, you know, when it comes to that. And they're just, they're little things that you do all the time that go such a long way. Nobody wants to be up at one in the morning unloading crates out of a helicopter. Just, just you know, especially- And it's in cold the in the desert, right? Like yeah, it gets cold is, at night. You know, middle winter in Afghanistan where, you know, it, it's, it, you're freezing your butt off. Um, uh, and it's, it's also, these are, these are, it's dangerous as well, you know? And so, um, because, you know, we get rocketed on the, on the HLZ all the time. Um, and so, uh, but I did it every single time. It was just, that was just one of those, you know, kind of maxims that you, you had to do. Um, now, I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there are times, um, uh, you know, in, in which, you know, perhaps you can't always, so that was what I, you know, that, that was, that was my principle. I mean, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe we're running an operation that night and, and I, you know, there's, there's, there literally is something else that I'm up for and I have to accomplish. But um, if you make those, you know, it, it, you know, if you if you kind of have that, you know, your your kind of your guiding principle, but because everyone is, is is looking at you as well. I mean, even even things such as, um, you know, again, it's a year long deployment. Um, I want everyone to be kind of, you know, uh, when I say spiritually, but it's it's more kind of just physically, mentally fit and, and healthy. Got to eat well. Got to, you know, you got so you, you got everyone has to work out. I was I was crazy about this, so I I would do things like that all the time. I wanted them to see, and and, and so for example, I would take off an hour. You know, uh, uh, I, I had this crazy routine. Again, this, we're, we're running 24-7 there. There's, there's no, like, you know, going to a, a local restaurant. There is no restaurant. Um, we're, we're, in a, you know, in a, in, a, in a base, you know, in a combat zone. Um, so, I'd, you know, I'd have my morning meeting and I'd do my cardio for an hour. And then, you know, afternoon around 4 or 5 o'clock, I'd, I'd hit the gym for an hour lifting. And I did that every single day for a year. Um, and and that, that showed everyone else around me, too. Like, okay, got it. We can do these things. That's really important. Um, you know, if, if Mark's doing this, that not only, you know, can we do it, we should do this. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, these are just, these are just kind of, uh, kind of easy leadership things that you can kind of institute, um, you know, right off the bat. Not everybody does it, but, you know, uh, I think you, 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 uh, you really risk um, a lot if you, if you kind of put on airs, if you think you're better than anyone else, um, no, that's, just, that's just not going to work. I love that. Um in, in our book, I wish, Jim, we're going to have to do a second edition where Mark gets like not his own chapter, but like five chapters maybe to even expand on some of the things. If you're not going to put them in your own second edition, Mark, which I would love, like a 2.0 that's three times as long maybe would be. I'll buy that, brother, for $2,000. I'll tell you right now, if you only sell one, it's to me. Probably two, copy two to Jim. But in all seriousness, um, Tammy Jo Schultz, who was the pilot, who was also, you know, a pioneer as a naval flyer and her mentor, Rosemary Mariner, Commander Rosemary Mariner, was basically the first top gun pilot in the Navy. Right. So she had a great example. But her and her husband, Tammy Jo and her husband, Dean, are now Southwest Airlines pilots. And so a lot of the chapter focuses not on how she managed to land that flight where an engine blew up and sucked that woman partially out and fellow passengers and flight crew managed to get her back in the cabin but she unfortunately right. passed the cabin depressurizes 
as a pilot. It's basically Sully, but because she's a woman, she doesn't have a movie deal, just to put it candidly. Right. Come on, Hollywood. Like, where are we? Oh, what really? century are we in? But anyway, one of the greatest leadership examples, and Jim, maybe you can think of another one from Tammy, Joe, and Dean. We interviewed them both together is that they will always go back into the cabin and pick up trash. If there are seatbelts that are left fastened, they will unfasten them so yeah. it's easier. This is why Southwest is great, right? Because I love all their people like this. It's brilliant. I don't know where they find all these people. Maybe the military, like Tammy, Joe, and Dean. So they're both naval aviators. But that was their servant leadership was there's that gross coffee cup you know, down there that's half full of coffee and it's going to spill over whoever gets it. Everyone knows that. And the, the newer flight attendants, sometimes they said, are a little squeamish about this or they don't want to mess with the, the diapers or the, you know, whatever it might be. The gross trash. Well, Tammy, Joe or Dean, if they're your pilot and or co-pilot that day, they're going to go and start doing this stuff. And really, it was to show everyone that, hey, we're not above you guys just because yeah. we have our wings and our pilot's cap. We're just with you guys. Um could you think of another example, Mark, of, of servant leadership that maybe Charlie taught you? Oh, I, I, this, this wasn't with Charlie, but it's something else that just came to mind. I, I love this. And so I, this was, you know, I, I made a couple of trips into Afghanistan. This was actually, uh, you know, soon after 9-11. Not, not, I wasn't on some of the original teams. There's actually some, some you know, some great new books out uh, about, about some of the first teams that went into Afghanistan after 9-11. But I, I, I arrived in Kandahar, um, southern Afghanistan, in February of, um, uh, of the next year. Um, uh, and so February of 2002, uh, and, and so we were, it was a CIA base co-located with the U S special forces team. Um, I was an operations officer, um, so not in a leadership position, but, but there was a weird dynamic between CIA and the special forces. They thought that, that we thought that we were above them. It was really silly and counterproductive. So we go off on this operation in which we're trying to, 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 you know, capture a, 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 a Taliban high value target. Um, and so, you know, U.S. Army, um, you know, uh, you, know uh, we, you know, they fly us to, to, to Helmand province, which is a, a province next door. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, it, it, you know it, it's pretty dramatic. The special forces team had had, uh, had their had their vehicles um, dropped. Um, so, you know, they, we had we had driven overland um, and then I arrived later. And it's 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 you know uh, uh, kind of this kind of crazy situation. And it's a whole other story about almost getting ambushed, almost getting killed. But ultimately, we had to, you know, the, the operation failed. We had to drive home. We had to drive back. It was a 13-hour overland drive, and we had Toyota Hilux pickup trucks. Um, and and there's there's only a couple seats in inside. Um, it's freezing cold, um, and so there's only, you know, so so only, you know, I was with a special forces team, and again, I was the only agency officer. They fully expected for me to demand that I sit up front in the heated cabin. You know, with uh, with the with the captain, special force captain. Now I'm no dummy, and and I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to suck this up, and I'm going to sit in the bed of the truck with all the we had Afghan indigenous fighters. I have never been so miserable in my life. It was 13 hours. I think I was hallucinating. I was I nearly I think I nearly you know I I almost I went hypothermic at the end of this thing. Um, I remember thinking as we were driving 13 hours, I was thinking of the marathons I ran and the suffering that I went through physically. Because it was so incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, I'm, I'm almost like you know spooning with these Afghan fighters because it was so cold. And when we finally got back to our base in Kandahar, you know, a 13-hour miserable drive. We had a you know a Spectre gunship on top of us to provide cover. I was covered in dust, head to toe. And yes, the special forces guys looked at me and they're laughing, but they're not. They're not making fun of me. They're like, "Goddamn, Mark just proved himself here." 
Um, he is not better. He does not think he's better than us. Um, and that, that was such a smart move on my part. I bonded with them immediately. Unbelievable. Um, really. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's, I, I, I kind of love that example. It wasn't fun. Um, and I was, I was pretty darn cold. Um, but what, a, what, a, what a, it was, it was just the right move to do to tell the other members of, of a team from a different organization that I'm not better than you. I'm going to suffer a little bit now. Um, and, and, you know, from that time on, you know, you know, we're all brothers uh, and, and comrades and, and they talked about this all the time. They're like, we thought for sure you were going to demand to be in. And, and they would have actually let me sit there, um, you know, up front. But that was something I really proved myself to them. And, and that was just kind of an easy thing um, uh, uh, to do as we had you know, important things uh, to accomplish over the next several weeks when I was there. Love it. If if we ever go on a road trip, the three of us uh, will have. <laughs> we'll, we'll give us you a, in the back. Oh. Yeah, you'll be in the back the whole way. And uh, no, no I'll tell you, I'll take the biblical example which you just said, Mark, of taking the lowest place, the lowest seat. Mm. Yeah, which is a good biblical parable that even if someone isn't a Christian, they could apply or has any faith, they can apply. It was it was it was the right thing, the smart thing. But I but I, I literally I, I remember, you know I'd run I previously I'd run an ultra marathon. Um, and, uh, you wouldn't know it now as I'm getting a little, little punch in my belly after you know, as I'm 51 now, but I literally was going back to those times. Like I was, I asked myself, okay, I've been this miserable before. I just was complete, utter fatigue and pain. Yeah. And tell us, I mean, I'm interested about yeah. this. So tell us which ultra was oh, it, uh, what, what I, year I was it? And, uh, tell us about that experience. And did you do another one crucially? Cause I if did. not, we can guess that it was just as bad or, or worse than taking no, the did. lowest place I in the it truck. Was, it was, so to be fair, it was it was not a. I mean, it was it was a fifty k. So it was a thirty mile. You know, Slacker. 30, yeah, it was a fifty k. <laughs> um, and and of course, you know, I, I uh, it was a it was, there's a, there's a really it's a great race. It's called the Dead to Red. It's from the Dead Sea to the Red Sea. It's in Amman, Jordan. Um, and it's and the, the the first fourteen miles are downhill, which you think is good, not good on your on your knees. Um, and so I remember, you know, I hit the, 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 you know, the marathon time at the 26 mile mark feeling great. And then my body went to shutdown mode and literally I was, I was, you know, I was shuffled, I shuffled the last couple of miles in just extraordinary pain. I just shut, I mean, cause you know, it was, it, it started off at 80 degrees and it ended at, at 45, you know, 40 degrees. Um, uh, and so, uh, that was, uh, that was a, a pretty extraordinarily miserable experience. Um, damn, if I was, I mean, I was not stopping, uh, you know, there were, we had a, even, my wife was driving the chase car even. And, uh, and, you know, she looked at me, I think she thought I was about to fall over, but there was no way I was, I was, I was going to stop, um, and, and not finish, but it wasn't fun. And so I really, but I, I look back and I, mean, I literally thought about that the whole time. Those last, um, you know, several miles was just of, of, I, my body had shut down. I was, it was not working anymore. Um, I was literally just shuffling. You know, it, it takes a long time to shuffle a couple miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, f so from a standpoint, what you're talking about then in lying in that truck bed, all filthy, and again, for people that don't know, the desert at night is cold, right? You might, yeah. you oh, might yeah. think, oh, there's no drop. It's like, it's like the Midwest or Florida. It's yeah. still 90 degrees at night, not so much, right? Um, so what you're talking about there maybe is the concept of self-efficacy. So you proved to yourself you could endure that ultra marathon, even yep. the last few miles when you weren't really with it. So then you knew, okay, well, this sucks. I wish I had taken the seat up front maybe a few times, um, but I've done this before. I can do it again. I thought about that 
over and over and over again. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, Jim. I, you know, I, I'd run a couple marathons earlier, and everyone in my my you know, I'm I'm a slow runner, but never trained properly, so it always was miserable. I mean, I never I never ran a marathon where I was you know fit enough to kind of enjoy it. Um, it was just a it was a it was always an endurance test of of kind of will. Um, and so it, that, that, I mean, it's really interesting though, because just that, that kind of athletic background, um, is what really, really helped me in times where I was, I mean, you know, that, that trip in Afghanistan was, I was suffering. That was, that was, uh, I, I mean, I, I probably should not have done that. I was so cold, um, you know, uh, but I kind of look back into all that, the kind of the, the physical misery I'd been before. And so that helped me. No, I love that. Jim, you've run a marathon, right? So yeah, when I was in grad school, I ran the uh, Chicago Marathon, and oh, uh, Chicago, yeah, and uh, man, uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's a suffer fest, and oh, yeah. uh, you got to use all these mental skills and strategies that you know the three of us talk about in terms of self talk and visualization, and you know putting a smile on your face, and uh, and Phil and I are actually doing a webinar tomorrow for uh, for for some uh, upcoming marathons and and participants that are going to be running in it, but. Uh, you know, kind of uh, to, to play off the word finish, you've talked about just finishing yeah. uh, and you're able to kind of get to the, uh, you know, cross the finish line. Tell us a little bit about uh, retirement, because uh, that's one of those things that, uh, you know, I work with a lot of athletes and, you know, obviously, and, and they retire at a really young age. And, and I get them, uh, the ones that I have a good working relationship with, and, you know, we've worked over several seasons together. Mm -hmm. I get them thinking about at least two years in advance about, what they want to do post-career right. so that they're moving towards something. Whereas if they don't start thinking about that, they're just moving away from something. So yeah. tell us about the process for you and any advice for someone that is approaching crossing the finish line of their, of their career or their craft. Sure. So, so, you know, retirement for, it wasn't, you know, it, 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 retirement was, was okay because I had this book in mind and I was, I was, you know, for lack of, I was kind of geeking out on leadership you know, in the last couple of years of my career, just because, you know, I, I, I'm the kind of, I get inspired by this stuff. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, Mark Messier, the New York Rangers in 1994, when he said, we will win, you know, when they were down to the, 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 uh, in the semifinals of playoffs, the New Jersey Devils, he goes out and scores a hat trick. I mean, there's great stories of this. So I always, it was inspired by leadership. So I knew that I wanted to, to, to write this book. And I think that helped me as well, because I had that goal. Um, that was important. But the other part too is, and, and I think there's probably, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's quite similar for athletes. So I miss the camaraderie, but I mean, I'm talking back in 2011, I was 40 years old flying around Afghanistan and helicopters and my back hurt. Like this is a younger person's game now. I, I can't do this anymore. And, and so, but you know, physically, and this is, this is true for the special operations committee, but also for, for in, in, in the intelligence community, like, you know, my body broke down. Um, and, and so, you know, there's, you know, I just, I, I couldn't do the things nor actually did I want to. So so, you know, my dream every day for the first, you know, 15 years of my career was to be at the tip of the spear in Iraq, Afghanistan or Syria. At the end of my career, when I'm, you know, when I'm 47, 48, I'm like, you know what? It's a, this is a younger person's game because, because my body's breaking down. I can't do this anymore. And so, you know, I, I made that kind of made that mental leap. I think that was really important for me. Um, and then again, I really started thinking more about kind of, kind of leadership and what that means. Everybody misses the camaraderie. And so, so, you know, I was a member of the Central Intelligence Agency. I was in the operations side of the house. I was a case officer, an operations officer. These are the fighter pilots of the Navy SEALs of the, of the intelligence community. And so no one is ever going to take that away from me, that feeling of being special. Um, and also the camaraderie of, 
you know, being first in a conflict. I mean, my kids were used to me just being gone, you know, and, and you know, then something pops up and, you know, it, you know, something breaks internationally and, you know, dad's not here. Well, they know where I am. Um, there, there's, there is, there is a thrill to that. I mean, they're really, you know, and so there, there's, that's what these, these, you know, we, we all have these kind of crazy type A personalities. Um, but then, then you realize, okay, it's time to, again, pass the torch. The next generation has got to do this and, and that's okay as well. And I, and I have a different role, um, at the end of my career, not as fun. Um, and then I just started the, the kind of the whole leadership thing. So it was, it was, it was, a, you know, it was a mental, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a process you go through. Um, I think probably just like some athletes, you know, uh, you know, when it's time, you know, to hang up the cleats, um, you just know. Uh, and so, you know, pe- you know, I, 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 am, I talk in the media all the time about um, the intelligence business now. Um, you know, I was on, you know, Morning Joe at MSNBC last week. I've been on every network talking about Afghanistan and the withdrawal. Um, and so people have asked me, like, would you go back at a very senior position? And I said, absolutely not. That's, that's you know, that's a different part of my life now. Um, and and I'll, I'll leave this, I'll leave, this, there's a great analogy that, that uh, 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 an old attorney for the CIA gave me. He said, when you leave the CIA, and maybe this is applicable to other lines of work, he said, you're getting divorced, all right? Because you know what, you're leaving. So you can have an amicable di- divorce or an acrimonious divorce, but you're getting divorced. So hopefully you still, you, know, you still have a good relationship with your parent company. Maybe same thing with, with, with an athlete, with a, with a team that he, he or she played with for a while. But, but, but it is a divorce and you have to move on. And to have that kind of longing for the past, you know, that's, that wasn't me. I don't think that's healthy. Um, uh, and then you find other stuff to do. And, and you know, I, I've, been, I, you know I'm, I, it's, I've been lucky that, that kind of this whole kind of the, with the book um, uh, and then talking in the media about intelligence. I mean, I've, I've, I've found myself, you know, quite busy and, um, and, and certainly engaged. Um, and, and the one great thing about the leadership um, aspect of things is I'm a rookie at this, you know, so I every, you know, and, and I talk about it in the book and, and I know I've talked to both of you about this. Like I don't have any formal leadership training. Obviously I've read a lot of books, you know, uh, you know, by, by, you know, by, by, you know, by, by Jim, by you and Phil, by you and, and the whole genre. And I find that fascinating, but, um, but I'm a rookie in this. And that's kind of exciting. I have a lot to learn. And, and if I watch a podcast or I read someone's book and a lot of times I do the same thing I, you know, I did in the past, I'm like, wow, you know, those people are better than me. This is, but in a good way, I'm like, I have a lot to learn. This is great. I love the examples or, or, or what someone is, is teaching or, or preaching or practicing. And so, you know, there's, there's, I'm still intellectually stimulated now because I think in the leadership genre, um, I'm just kind of getting into this. I hope people enjoy with what I have to say, but I certainly realize I have a lot to learn, um, you know, from others. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. Well, I was just going to just say the uh, great analogy about the divorce. Uh, uh, I do uh, recommend to athletes and other performers when they retire, uh, you know, a little reminiscing is okay. But like you said, you got to find your new sport, you know, or or your new craft. And um, and I think that's really important. So um, and, and it's fun. Like you said, you, you get to kind of be that rookie again with those butterflies and, you know, kind of a steep learning curve that that's that's a fun challenge. So uh, I think that, you know, what you just said there is helpful to all of us. No, for sure. Mark, um one last point for me, and then I'll let Jim ask another question. We'll let you get out of here because we promised you 90 minutes and we're knocking on the door. So we know you have kids and a good lady wife as well. And so we're not going to um, mess with you and keep you for four hours, much as selfishly you want to. So right before I finished reading your book, I read an interview with the great mountaineer Conrad Anker. 
And if somebody is not familiar with Anchor, um, and his last name is not I'm, the way I'm pronouncing it, is a dirty Brit, um, like a ship anchor, but A-N-K-E-R. And so watch the documentary Meru um, that Jimmy Chin, Jimmy Chin and, and his now wife, um, Elizabeth Chai, did. And uh, brilliant. Love, love Meru. Just rewatched it. So I geeked out on Conrad Anchor. Jim and I know this. We share our articles about him and Jimmy and all those guys. And we're not mountaineers, to be candid, but maybe we wish we were. We're, we're like mental mountaineers, perhaps. So um, Conrad talked about in this interview, and I forget whether it's WSJ or who, or maybe, you know, outside or maybe Adventure Journal, that the objective, since he had suffered pulmonary edema, um, altitude related, and here's a guy that spent half his life in the Himalaya, um, you know, had this event as a 50 something year old, that his objective now has changed. So him, Jimmy, and Renan went back to Meru after failing the first time and not to spoil the movie for you or anyone else, but succeeded. And people said this cannot be climbed, right? And so if you've only seen Free Solo from Jimmy Chin and um, his wife, buckle up, because this is amazing. It's a great comeback story. But he said, my objective now is to come home from to my wife and kids in one piece. And so he's doing a lot more on the flat land of the Arctic and still in harsh conditions. And he'll still, he could outclimb 99% you know, of, of folks half his age. But I, I, in your book, you said, now I get to watch my son's baseball games. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I thought of Conrad and I just read that and just rewatched the film. So can you talk about how maybe the objective, the mission objective and desired outcome, the commander's intent had changed for you and, and what that was like? Well, you mean in, in terms of in, in retirement as well? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that as a, as a CIA officer, and, and this is this is certainly applicable to other kind of demanding professions, is you make so many sacrifices along the way. Um, you know, I missed a lot of time with my family, uh, and that's time you can't get back. Um, one of the one of the things I try to do and try to talk about, I certainly did in the book, but when I talk to um, you know in the groups as well, is that you know that that idea of work family balance balance, which I never practiced. Um, that's a pretty good concept uh, uh, to to kind of adhere to. And you know, there there are times when kind of the nation calls and you got to go, but um, but having having a little bit of a healthier kind of work family balance, and so. You know, just spending time with you know my wife and my kids now. You know, both my kids are in college, but they're close by, so we see them all the time. I get to go to my son's you know baseball games. I'm actually a terrible baseball parent um, uh, because I get too nervous watching. I just it's horrible and it's terrible. And my my wife thinks I have an issue with this. Um, but it's, again, it's it's based on my terrible you know my type A personality of like hating to fail. And and baseball, of course, is a game of you know uh, of of failure constantly. Um, but there, you know, there's plenty of other things that, you know, that, that I want to do, you know, in the world. And so you do have this kind of reset. Um, you know, I, I have been, you know, uh, uh, scuba diving, uh, you know, off the coast of Eritrea in the Red Sea. Yet I've never been to, um, uh, uh, to the Grand Canyon. You know, there's stuff I got to do in life. Uh, I, you know, I've, I have, you know, camped out in the deserts in the Middle East everywhere. Um, but I've, I've only been to California once. And so, you know, there's there's so much more that's still out there for me. So it's, it's not a bucket list because that's kind of too, you know, kind of gruesome. Um, but it's just there's other things to do in life. And so, again, when people ask me, you know, you know, am I engaged? My father, like my father's 83. Um, it was worried about me in retirement. And I kept saying, I'm actually fine. I'm kind of happy. You know, it's, this is good. There's other things I want to do. I'm not going to sit in the house all day and die. I want to, you know, I want to kind of see things that I haven't seen. Um, spend more time with the family and kids. And so I think that's, that's just, you know, that's, that's really healthy. And, um, you know, it's, it, you know, the, 
the and and I'm also still comforted that there are good you know there are good there are great men and women heroes in the intelligence community and special operations military law enforcement who still do really hard things um, selfless things you know in, in the shadows for for our country um, one of the things that I that I did recently I, I'll just mention it now um, is I, I I was asked by the Philadelphia Police Department to come and give this leadership talk. Um, and so I went to see the, 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 uh, the 18th district in, in Philadelphia, a young captain guy by the name of Matt Gillespie had read my book. He was totally mesmerized by it. So I went and I, I spent hours with, with, you know, the, the, you know, first of all, um, you know, the, the uniform cops and then some of the undercover cops. Um, and I was just, you know, they, they totally responded to this because I just wanted to, you know, to thank them for what they do. It's not a political statement, uh, you know, it, because everything in America now is crazy with this, but it's kind of a selfless job. Very similar to what I had, um, uh, you know. I, I would say policing is an indispensable institution, just like um, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, you know, uh, certainly was. Um, and and one of the things I did, I, I wrote an article on it, and that's why I went on. You know, I did some media recently on this, and so I was able to kind of help these, um, uh, you know, these cops uh, uh, who who are you know are encountering tremendous gun violence. The, the homicide rate in Philadelphia is out of control. Um, they live in the city. Um, they were they were a mixture of of every different kind of there were male there were females or males different ethnic you know groups different races um, uh, but I you know I, I you know I had a little bit of an impact on them um, and amazingly enough I mean I, I this is I, I was shocked that as I went on some ride-alongs um, two of the cops who I was just I spent some time with were just shot two days ago um, and they they will survive there was a huge gun battle it was all over the media in Philadelphia um, and so just you know the, but but so this is my new passion I'm teaching leadership. And, and some people are responding to this and asking me to come and talk to them. Um, you know, I, I did a, I did a leadership class for the local county, uh, uh, some local county teachers. Who would have thought that teachers would love this book? And they did. Um, you know, uh, you know the, the glue guy and the glue gal. By the way, in in the Fairfax County public school system, those are the IT professionals, and and some of the IT folks love that concept because like we get we get yelled at all the time because the computer systems fail. But you know what? That play, that's an indispensable part of it. So long story or long-winded answer is that there's there's plenty of things for me to do in life. I'm, I'm super engaged. And uh, that would be the lesson um, for, you know, for people who kind of move on from their primary job. There's, there's a, you know, you're not dead in retirement. That's for sure. No, I love that. Well, I feel like we've undergone your masterclass in leadership. And if you ever record any of those talks, please uh, share the recordings because Jim and I would love to geek out with you and and have offline chats about that and sure. hopefully welcome you back. But um, yeah, and thank you for giving back to, to our military, to our war fighters, to our intelligence officers like yourself, to, to our police officers, um, and helping them do a very difficult job and also to our, to our teachers and the others that you, that you give back to selflessly and often for no pay, because that's, um, again, you have the mindset set of a servant leader and, uh, Jim and I are greatly inspired by it. Um, Jim, maybe one more question for Mark or some closing thoughts? Yeah, just closing thoughts. Uh, what a great way to, I think, to finish our discussion uh, with, uh, with what you're doing after retirement and how exciting it is and uh, what a gift you're giving all of us in terms of sharing your personal stories. I think uh, stories are the magic of life and, you know, we learn best through stories. So, I couldn't recommend your book highly enough. Um, like Phil said, you know, we we both read it as soon as we got it and uh, underlined a lot. And, and that's always a good sign of a, of a, a well-written book is you want to underline, remember it. And, you know, there's so much in there that we didn't get to. Uh, and, and, and so if you 
you know, if you're thinking about reading a good leadership book, I would start with Mark's. Uh, there's, you're going to learn stuff like Process Monkey and some other things in there that, uh, that you won't forget. So uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for being who you are and doing what you do. No, thanks so much. And Mark, finally, could you tell people um, if they want to keep up with you through if they're on the socials, um, on the sure. socials, if they're not, again, to restate the title of the book. And, and also, if you have a website, could you just let people know how to reach you, whether they're old school like me or new school like Jim? Sure. So so uh, the book is, of course, you know, uh, Clarity and Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Um, available on Amazon, but and, and as well as many other platforms as, uh, as well. The, um, the, the book landing page is clarityandcrisisbook.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm a prolific uh, user of Twitter, which, which I think the, uh, some of the, my, my agents in the publishing houses wish I wouldn't, cause I tweet on everything. It'll be on baseball. It'll be on dive bars and food, whatever I feel like. Careful that careful expressing a dangerous idea of your own now and again. I know I'm, I'm unfiltered and, and I, and I piss everybody off from the right and the left. And, um, and so it's uh, but I have a lot of fun with it. So it's the, my Twitter handle is at M polymer. Um, and, and one of the things on, uh, you know, you know, what I, what I do do, um, is I, you know, people write me, you know, uh, direct DMs, direct messages all the time. And I answer everybody. Um, and so again, it's the same, the same thing we were talking about before I have, you know, if I don't answer, it's just cause I have a million messages that day, but I really do take the time to answer folks. Um, I'm getting my own website set, uh, uh, more. I, I do have one now, but it's, I have to, I have to kind of revamp that as well again, cause I'm a rookie in this. Us um, too. <laughs> and so, so I have to, I have to redo the website, but I'm super accessible. I, I and you know, one of the things that, that I, I, I do, I think that I have to get better at is, you know, people, people call me from all over the country to come talk to them. I say, sure, I do it. And I, and I, and I forget to, you know, even talk about a fee. So I do way too much stuff for free, but it's the same thing as the servant leadership stuff. I'm not going to charge, you know, a bunch of teachers, um, uh, you know, who want to, want to talk about leadership or, or, or a bunch of cops who want to, you know, talk leadership as well. But uh, I love talking to people. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I gave this speech to, you know, our high school football team, um, one day and the glue guy, you know, I, we had a division one quarterback, you know, it's got by the name of Rye Yates. He's playing division one football. Now I said, Rye, who's your glue guys. And he pointed to the offensive, you know, the table with the offensive linemen, they all went crazy. Um, so that's the stuff I love, you know, and, and it's just giving back. Um, I have a meeting tomorrow morning with the deputy police chief here in Vienna, cause I want to do some stuff with them as well. Um, and so it's, a, it's just exciting to do that. No, we love it. Um, we wish we had known you for many more years than we do, wow. but so glad that our, our mutual friends at HarperCollins Leadership introduced us. And um, thank you for your mentorship and thank you for, for inspiring us to be better leaders and um, for really just displaying a leader's mind in, in everything you do and, and, and all the great servant leadership that you do in the community. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been fun today. Great conversation. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.